Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the ER on the go podcast. This is Mustafa Al Habubi, an AIM physician. Today we have another interesting case. Before I go into the case, I would like to welcome Dr. Blair Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is an internist and intensivist working at the Jewish General Hospital, which is affiliated with McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Blair, welcome with us. Thank you so much for having me, Mustafa. I look forward to the discussion tonight. Thank you for being here with us. Um, Blair, before I go into the case, I would like to remind our uh, dear listeners that the cases discussed in this um, episode should be used only for the educational purposes, um, should not be used without the consultation of a medical specialist. The details of the case have been changed to protect the patient's identity and privacy. It was a high care shift at the emergency. A 35 years old lady was brought into the resuscitation bay for weakness. She had a subtotal colectomy with end ileostomy a week earlier. History confirmed high output from the fistula, which was the most likely cause of the weakness. Exam revealed borderline blood pressure around the 90s with the heart rate around 110 and normal other vitals. The patient looked extremely dehydrated and was maintaining well. After getting a difficult IV line, we started IV fluid resuscitation and sent labs. The, far, the first lab that came back was the venous blood gas. And the first thing we looked at was the lactate, which was seven. We wondered if this was from a hemolyzed sample, but a repeat VBG and even an ABG confirmed the results. The most probable cause at that time, based on our um, differential that we generated, was hypovolemia. Before we started to give the patient more fluid, we looked at the rest of the labs. Sodium, to our surprise, was 117. Potassium was 6.1. pH was 6. Point, sorry, pH was 7.6 with a bicarb of 19 and PCO2 of 24.7. Creatinine was 242 from a normal baseline. Rest of the labs, including CBC, were unremarkable. The last sodium three days prior to presentation was 125 with 130 the day before. Blair, if we ignore the potassium for now and focus on the sodium, at this point, we knew the patient has severe fluid deficit, but because of the severe hyponatremia, we had to slow down with our fluid resuscitation and consult a specialized service to help us with resuscitating the patient. How would you approach such a patient? Mustafa, great. Um, thank you for choosing a great case like this. As you're aware, I'm an internist, and so anytime you give me an opportunity to talk about sodium is going to make my day. Uh, the only way you can make this better would be somehow work Star Wars or Lord of the Rings into it. I think you have a lot of stuff to unpack. So if I'm with you sort of you know, in the resuscitation bay, either as the intensive care uh, consultant or as the internist, there's a couple of things really that I want to do right off the bat. And I think this is a nice case for you and your audience to really contemplate the difference between 
concurrent resuscitation and differential diagnostics. So really on first view, we've got two potentially competing interests. On one hand, you've got a patient who's mildly hypotensive, tachycardic with evidence of hypoperfusion and, and organ dysfunction as evidenced by the elevated lactate and the acute kidney injury. And so you don't want to spend, you know, one hour and a half doing internal medicine rounds to sort it out. But by the same token, you've got a potential competing interest here in terms of the severe hyponatremia. And you really want to make sure that your treatment of the shock state doesn't at the same time worsen or cause any particular side effects. And so really for me, I'm going to immediately right off the bat say, yes, I'm going to want to treat my hypoperfusion presumably with isosmolar crystalloids, but perhaps could some of my discussion and my thought with regards to the hyponatremia play a role into it. Before I kind of walk you through my approach a little bit more, Mustafa, just one key message for your learners. Uh, be wary of, uh, of venous blood gases. I think you and your gang were very correct to go ahead and repeat it. Just a reminder for your listeners that venous blood gas analysis of electrolytes is done on whole blood and so cannot assay hemolysis, which usually will not impact on the sodium, would be more likely to spuriously elevate a potassium or a, uh, or a lactate. And so while uh, venous blood gas electrolytes can guide management, as they do here with the hyponatremia, you really would prefer to rely on full plasma labs that come from a, uh, a serum biochemistry. They're much more reliable long-term. So switching gears to the hyponatremia before I tell you how I'm going to manage that, a couple of things that I'd want to know concurrently while I'm preparing to resuscitate Mustafa is going to be twofold. Is one, is the hyponatremia acute or non-acute? And that's really going to dictate how I'm going to be following this patient after the initial resuscitation. And by that, the usual time point you'll speak about is generally 48 hours. And so in this particular vignette, you're providing me incidents that she was already heading towards hyponatremia, that 72 hours ago, she was already mildly hyponatremic at 125. And so while there may be an acute worsening, we have to classify this as a chronic hyponatremia. And then the second question that I'd have when I'm sort of assessing and before I decide is, is the hyponatremia here incidental? That is to say, is it just an abnormal lab value and not contributing to symptoms? Or does she concomitantly have shock and symptomatic hyponatremia? And what you're describing to me, a lady who is alert, oriented, not uptunded with no neurological findings, we're going to say here that the hyponatremia is likely incidental. And so my primary cardinal feature is going to be to go ahead and try to treat the shock state. So that's my overall initial management state. And again, here, um, what we want to do is putting it together. Here's a lady with a high output stoma who's got asymptomatic chronic hyponatremia. Certainly for the shock state, the AKI, the lactate, the hypotension, we want to go ahead uh, and treat the volume deficit on the understanding that that is also likely what is driving this patient's severe hyponatremia. And so what we want to do is twofold. We want to start treating the shock acknowledging that it'll have bearing on the hyponatremia, but also one of the things concurrently I would do in the resuscitation bay, Mustafa, is making sure that I consider alternative and I have all of the information that's going to allow me to follow the hyponatremia afterwards. My priority is treat the shock, but I want to make sure that I don't lead to an overcorrection, that I've got the information that I need. And so in addition to the laboratories that you and your team have already asked for, it would be germane, if possible, uh, to make sure we get a thyroid stimulating hormones, that we don't miss concomitant hypothyroidism. 
absolutely reasonable to get a cortisol, particularly in the basis of the fact that this patient is uh, mildly hyponatremic. I don't know the reason for her subtotal colectomy, but if it was for ulcerative colitis, she could have had recurrent courses of, uh, of prednisone previously. Uh, urine uh, osmolarity, urine sodium, and a serum osmolarity would really help me round out what I would want to do. And then I'd go back and just put on my resuscitation hat and do as I think most ER physicians would do is start to resuscitate this patient. And then my question would be, all right, she needs a bolus of crystalloids, normal saline versus lactated ringers. And here there's really no evidence to guide which one you would want to do. Uh, my usual default uh, is lactated ringers. One of the possible reasons to avoid using normal saline would be due to the higher osmolarity of normal saline. Again, remember that the osm on normal saline is 308 compared to about 280, 285 for ringers. You may lead to, you know, if you give a liter of each, you may lead to a larger jump in sodium if you use normal saline compared to lactated ringers. That is purely theoretical. And so really, I wouldn't fault any resuscitationist from administering right off the bat to this patient one liter of either isoosmolar lactated ringers or one uh, liter of normal saline as long as you were cognizant to follow the sodium moving forward. So that would be my initial approach to this patient, Mustafa. Thank you very much. If I can summarize uh, what you mentioned, so first, I want to know if, if the, the hyponatremia is acute or chronic, and here we say it's chronic because it's more than 48 hours. Then I want to see what's my competing interest. One is the hyponatremia, the other is the shock, and the, the shock takes precedence here. Then I can resuscitate my patient for the shock, keeping in my mind that I have to look for the other causes of hyponatremia, so TSH and uh, sodium osmolarity and um, uh, um, sodium cortisol, uh, sorry, serum cortisol if the patient was uh, having ulcerative colitis, for example, uh, as a cause for her uh, surgery, then she was on chronic steroids. Then I would use probably ringer lactate as opposed to sodium uh, NaCl because it has a lower osmolarity. And uh, this, as you mentioned, is, is more of um, a theoretical uh, point, but uh, valid uh, based on what you explained. Now, Blair, um, you're right. I, I try to keep the case uh, simple, but the patient had subtotal colectomy uh, because of osteoarthritis, colitis, and she was on steroids. And for that reason, we added steroids, uh, like a stress dose of steroids. Super, super reasonable, Mustafa, absolutely. But again, you know, these are the kind of clues and things to think about. And certainly, you know, if you're going to take a, you know, I never really sort of support shotgun approaches to workups, but individuals with, you know, severe hyponatremia, always reasonable and never forget the sort of unforgivable sins are to miss severe hypothyroidism or severe hypo uh, adrenalism. And so really, I would applaud you and your colleagues for empirically starting stress dose corticosteroids. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's take it further. Let's let's uh, take it into um, more kind of simple uh, writing orders kind of thing. So I'm gonna resuscitate my patient. Let's say I, I give the first uh, liter of uh, Ringer lactate. Is there is a limit for where I should stop? How frequent should I check the sodium? What should the target of sodium be in, in this setting or increasing the sodium? And that, that's a great question, Mustafa. And, and here, I think it, you know, it bears some time to talk a little bit in terms of why these patients become hyponatremic. And really, you know, as an internist, when I'm thinking about these patients, I like to think, like I talked about earlier, acuity versus chronicity. Uh, and I like to think about the mechanism. And the reason for the acuity versus chronicity is it dictates the risk of overcorrection. And so really, very simply, as the external milieu becomes hyposmolar and severe hyponatremia, the brain 
uh, really mitigates its idiogenic osmols to try to prevent the impact of the osmolarity on the brain. And so this takes time, right, on the order of 24 to 36 hours. And so the dictum is that if the hyponatremia is acute or hyperacute, then you don't need to worry about how rapidly you correct it. The brain has not had time to equilibrate. If, however, in this instance, um, as we've seen, the hyponatremia took place well over 48 hours, if you overly rapidly correct the serum sodium, as you make the serum sodium environment hyperosmolar relative to the brain, you run the risk of an emigration of fluid outside of the brain and one of the most feared complications, which would be osmotic demanding syndrome, formerly called central pontine myelinolysis. And so very, very, very important if you are in a chronic hyponatremia situation, as we are here, Mustafa, to be very attentive to that and check your serum sodiums regularly. And so practically what I'm doing is right off the bat, I'm going to be checking my serum chemistry obligately on a Chem 7, acknowledging some of the limitations on blood gas analysis and the reliability and the variability of that. And I'm going to be cycling that every two hours for the first six to eight hours, and then thereafter going every four hours. And as a rough rule of thumb, the current teaching should be that you shouldn't really rise your serum sodium by more than six millimoles per liter within 24 hours. And that's going to be really, really imperative to make sure that you stick to that. Uh, otherwise, you do run the risk of osmotic demanding syndrome. And while that is a rare complication, I can tell you having seen a case, it is absolutely devastating for our patients. And so it's very important to make sure that, you know, after you've done your initial resuscitation, put in the priority on the patient's hemodynamics, their lactate, and their overall survival, that once you've abrogated the immediate threat to life, you then need to spend a lot of time very closely focusing on making sure we don't cause any long-term neurological sequelae for osmotic demanding syndrome, whether they did or did not come in for shock. And so regular serum electrolytes starting off every two hours for, you know, like I said, six to eight hours, and then every four hours for the first 24 hours, making sure you respect that dictum of not overcorrecting by more than six millimoles per 24 hours. Excellent, Blair. <clears throat> so if I address that correctly, um, I can give one, two, three liters of fluid, no problem, if I, as long as I resuscitate the patient, because this is what was our fear, to be honest with you, when we started. We just give the patient a liter, and then we stop to resuscitate the patient. So based on what you're telling me, my understanding is now I can give as much fluid as I, I, as I want or the patient needs uh, to correct their uh, hypovolemia, but then I have to pay attention to the sodium. So if if I overcorrect the sodium, I see my medicine colleagues sometimes give dismopressin. Is that a, um, a, a practice that would you would recommend uh, or you would prefer that we go more careful and try to avoid uh, you know overshooting as much as possible? So uh, that's a great question, Mustafa. Just to sort of reiterate a little bit, you know, you can't, you cannot just go sort of, you know, willy-nilly um, and resuscitate ad nauseum. I would certainly advocate in your vignette, you know, give aliquots of fluid until you fix the shock. You fix the hemodynamic state. The heart rate comes down to sub 100. Your blood pressure is better. And you really do need to be very, very, very attentive. Because if you give these patients three, four, five, six liters of crystalloids, uh, you almost certainly are going to overcorrect. And the key thing to remember in these patients uh, is why they overcorrect. And one of the one of the misnomers is that people think overcorrection is caused by the IV fluids that we administer. That's actually not the case. Uh, in reality, the way to detect overcorrection, the way our patients overcorrect, is actually caused by renal free water loss. 
And so what happens to these patients is that, you know, in the hypovolemic state, your patient in your vignette has been intravascularly volume deplete, and so they've turned on antidiuretic hormone and aldosterone. And then as your resuscitation repletes the, the first space, the intravascular space, that ADH stimulus, that appropriate ADH stimulus gets turned off. And all of a sudden, these patients, if they are prone to do so, will have a huge renal free water loss. And it's that relative free water loss that's going to cause the overcorrection. And so, Mustafa, in addition to watching and cycling your electrolytes, one of the things to be very, very, very attentive to is your urine output. And so, you know, one of the classic teachings that I like to kind of pass on to my residents, uh, yourself and your audience, uh, is that if in a hyponatremic patient you see greater than 100 mLs per hour of urine output for two consecutive hours, that's the patient population where you need to be very careful about overcorrection. And certainly, knowing your previous serum osmolarity can help you. So right off the bat in the vignette you describe where this person's ADH is turned on, I would expect their urine osmolarity to be high. They're concentrating their urine, trying to hold on to every ounce of water that they've got. However, once your resuscitation has removed that antidiuretic hormone stimulus, you would expect their urine osmolarity to drop. And so one of the indications that they are at risk of over rapid rise would be a significant free water loss. So a significant urine output and uh, a urine osmolarity that drops to below 100. So the so kind of you know, rule of 100s, you know, greater than 100 cc's per hour of urine and a urine osmolarity that's less than 100 uh, milliosms per kilo would be indications of risk for um, over rapid correction. And so as you sort of your initial question with regards to desmopressin, there really are two overall approaches uh, to this. There are some people who would say right off the bat um, in a very sort of aggressive preventative fashion, put someone on desmopressin immediately, the so-called desmopressin clamp, uh, which would basically prevent them from having any ongoing urine output, Mustafa, and turn the person really just into what we call a closed box which is you and I as the clinicians will have complete control over what goes in and we will basically turn off urine output using desmopressin. And so that's a what you call a preventative strategy uh, and then you would use that in people at very high risk of overcorrection. Or, uh, and there is no data to suggest one is superior to the other, hold off on desmopressin until such time as you see indications of overcorrection. And that is either very brisk, uh, very brisk urine output, the urine osmolarity plummets, or you start to see that you have gone above the threshold. And the nice safety gap about that threshold of 6 millimoles per liter per 24 hours is that uh, all is not lost if you overcorrect. I mean, if you accidentally on your next... Uh, data point get up to 8 or 10 uh, mLs difference, so in this case you went from 115 uh, up to 125 for example, you could absolutely bring it back down. Okay, and so if you do overcorrect, all is not lost. You don't have to wring your head in shame. Uh, you could put the person on the desmopressin clamp anywhere from two to four micrograms IVQ six hours. That'll prevent any further um, renal free water loss and then as necessary you can kind of bring them back down to that trajectory so if you went up by 10 millimoles but you actually really only wanted them to go back by six uh, put them on the desmopressin clamp prevent further urinary loss and then just give them whether it's PO so 250 to 300 mLs of water to drink or you can calculate 
the free water deficit necessary to drop their sodium by the amount that you want and administer that intravenously by free water. And because they're on the clamp, they will not urinate. And it's really kind of like just making soup. Uh, you just add more water uh, as necessary to bring it back down. Excellent, excellent explanation. Thank you for that. Okay, so I, I guess that's this uh, addresses um, the, the important clinical questions about this case. If we want to uh, take things further, three uh, percent so, uh, sodium. Mm -hmm. I know one of the indicators for emerge is you know um, uh, symptomatic patients, so uh, seizure. But uh, would you mind if we go through some of the indications and how would how much would you give for the patient? Absolutely, Mustafa, and uh, it was a great case, and I hope the lady in your vignette uh, did well. Certainly, from what you've shared from you and your team's management, it certainly sounds like she would. I mean, I guess the really the key message for everybody is you know very much going back to what I said before in the beginning, acute versus chronic. If you're in acute, so less than 48 hours, that's your patients with you know, your MDA intoxication, your exercise-induced uh, hyponatremia, uh, your severe water intoxication. Uh, and these patients really just manage their, their hyponatremia uh, for, for symptoms, and you don't have to worry about overcorrection. And so where do I use 3% saline? Well, I use it for sure in my severely symptomatic patients. So who's that? That's anybody with hyponatremia where I believe that their seizure, their severe obtundation, their severe delirium are directly related to the hyponatremia. And so what do I do for these patients? I, I bolus them with 3%. And so for severe symptomatic hyponatremia, what I, I tend to use is 150 milliliters of 3% saline, IV over 5 to 10 minutes. Uh, the rapidity with which I do it depends on whether they're, they're seizing or just uh, severely comatose, and then I see the effect. Um, and what I'll do is shortly after my first bolus, you know, in about an hour, um, two hours afterwards, repeat my chemistry and see what that effect is. Now, like I said earlier, Mustafa, really important not to rely on venous blood gases. The, the variability on them is just not precise enough for this. Uh, if I see that my patient is still symptomatic, and has uh, not gone up by more than five millimoles per liter, I might consider uh, a second bolus given in the same way of around 150 milliliters of 3% saline. And truth be told, after you've pumped up that sodium by six, if they still remain severely symptomatic, that's usually my threshold to consider something else. What am I missing? Uh, because the likelihood of residual severe symptomatic hyponatremia after you've pushed it up by about you know, four to six millimoles is exceedingly, exceedingly unlikely. And I strongly would suggest a search for another cause of your patient's neurological symptoms. That's clear. Thank you, Blair. But let me go one step back, if you don't mind, because you, sure. you want to wait for the CHEM7 as opposed to the VBG, because um, the VBG is not as accurate. But if the patient is seizing, for example, CHEM7 takes time to come back. and 100% uh, agreed. Yeah. So. In that case, you know, you can certainly, if it fits your clinical construct and your gas comes back and your sodium is 113, uh, I wouldn't advocate, just to make myself clear, waiting for the CHEM-7, but certainly following things forward. So in terms of looking for overcorrection and looking for whether or not you've pushed the sodium up sufficiently after that initial diagnostic utility of your point of care, blood gas or, um, or your GEM, then I would, thereafterwards, I would rely on plasma chemistries just for more accuracy. But for your initial diagnostics, there's no, there's no doubt, Mustafa, whatsoever, the rapidity of the, of the point of care on the blood gas or uh, the hemocure, whatever else you're using for point of care labs is absolutely acceptable. Just don't use it longitudinally for follow-up. It's just not accurate enough for that.
got it clear excellent um so now we discussed the sick patient with hyponatremia uh, i'm gonna move uh, to the less sick patient with hyponatremia and i know this is a, a topic uh, that is a bit uh, you know sensitive between medicine and emerge we always start with an acl and then sometimes we do urine lights and then um, our colleagues from internal medicine uh, are not happy, but you know the patient is undifferentiated. Sometimes we feel they need the, the fluid bolus. So, can you give me some pearls on how to deal with hyponatremia patient that is not sick? I, you know, thank you for asking. And again, listen, you know, I love my ER colleagues, uh, and, and for a million years, I would not want your job. And so, um, you know, I I tip my hat to you guys. I think my first message is really. If you have a patient who does not have symptomatic hyponatremia, the first thing to do is stop um, because all it is is a number and the most important thing you can do for that patient is actually try to make a diagnosis. And so get your TSH, get your cortisol, serum osmolarity, urine osmolarity, urine sodium, and then either yourself parse through that to try to figure out what the cause is. Um, and it's so important for me to state that the majority of cases of hyponatremia are not salt deficit. And so administration of isoosmolar saline or, or normal saline may work if the ideology is truly hypovolemia. Uh, but you can, in fact, make things significantly, significantly worse, both in terms of dropping the serum sodium in cases of severe SIADH or extremely rapid overcorrection if you're dealing with a TN toaster or a hypoosmolar hyponatremia. And so my usual recommendations to my ED colleagues are if they're not symptomatic, that is to say no neurosymptoms that are referable to the hyponatremia, they're not in shock like in uh, the vignette that we opened this podcast with, send your labs, send your urine, stop and phone a friend. That would be my best advice. And that is not in any way, shape, or form meant to besmirch the amazing work of emergency medicine, but without a full diagnostic panel of urine electrolytes, TSH, cortisol, and knowing what the kidney is doing, there's no way to know what your isoosmolar saline will do. It may make them better, but it may make them quite a bit worse. So that would be my best advice. No, thank you. And I appreciate the advice, Blair, because uh, the more I, uh, to be honest with you, the more I read about hyponatremia, the more complex I find it is, and the more I think um, it needs the time and, and the experience. It is something that you have to apply once and twice and thrice to get. And then um, the way we work and emerge, you know, with the flow and, uh, and, and the fast pace we deal with patients is not enough to get through this. So um, um, absolutely, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think it's a very valid advice. Um, Blair, I cannot thank you enough for the advice uh, and the, all the teaching you gave me before, before we meet during my residency, still during my fellowship and for this podcast. I, on behalf of my all my listeners on the podcast, thank you very much for uh, being here tonight. Thank you again for having me and uh, good luck to everybody. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.